So up until uh, this evening, Paul has been showing us a picture of the local body, the church, particularly this one at Corinth that he writes to, uh, that if standard is the word of God, it's not men, it's not the opinions of men, it's the word of God. And uh, in verse 11 through 13 is where we're really at this evening. He talks about, uh, he's speaking sarcastically to these people a little bit. Uh, he's already said in verse 10 that they're not only fools, uh, they're sufferers. And that's what he goes into in verse 11 through 13. They're sufferers. In this world, anybody that goes any which direction is going to suffer. Peter says, if any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. It's a lot lighter, isn't it? You're going to suffer is the point. Whether you're of the world or whether you're of Christ, you're going to suffer. You suffer for what you believe in. Uh, people commit suicide because they don't believe in anything. So, the man of God is going to suffer if he's faithful to the Word. He's going to suffer. He's not going to be welcomed by the world. They're not going to run out there and tell you how grand you are and how great you are. And if that's what you're looking for, you shouldn't be in the pulpit or the teacher's podium in the first place. But if that's what you're, is that, if that's what the world uh does is praises you and pats you on the back, then you got a serious problem as a preacher of God, as a minister of God. So he says they're not only fools, verse 10, they're sufferers in verse 11 through 13. He says uh, we're weak, we're dishonored, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we have to work hard, uh, we're cursed, uh, we're persecuted, we're slandered. Now only a man that really believes what he advocates is going to suffer them things. If that's his uh, mission is to serve God and consequently to serve a congregation or people, then he's going to be, he's going to suffer these things. Uh, but it's nothing like what the world suffers. And you need to recognize the difference. When Jesus, in Matthew 11, uh, verse 28 through 30, I think it is, when he gave the invitation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Does the Lord give us rest? Oh, yeah. And peace. Peace comes with a, a, a byproduct or part of rest, doesn't it? Because I can now rest, as we've seen in the sermon Sunday, uh, in the serenity of God. I can have that serene spirit knowing that God rules this world. That there's nothing going to happen down here that doesn't work for man's good. Uh, as Paul said in Romans 8.31, since God is for us, who are what can be against us? And so that's quite a question, you know, because God has showed He's for us in the creation in the daily provision in everything about life and in his word and on a cross that still stands incidentally and so here is the suffrage of not only the apostles as Paul speaks of them uh, specifically but of any man who would stand in the gap and preach the word you're not going to be popular you're not doing it for popularity are you but you need to know that you're going to have problems. And the Lord said, Come unto me, all ye that labor heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a thing that an oxen put was on an oxen's shoulders. And that's what the plow was hooked to. And so we're pulling the plow in life. We're plowing for either God or for the devil. And the Lord said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. The world don't have a clue about that rest, that peace, that satisfaction of knowing who you are and whose you are. 
and the fact that God is the God of all the tomorrows of your life. And so I don't need to know what my tomorrows hold. I just need to know who holds my tomorrows. All right, so here Paul describes, uh, he's talking specifically to these false teachers that are there at Corinth, as well as the, er the arrogant pride of these men, these groups of men who have called themselves after Paul, Paulus, Cephas, and Christ. He's still trying to dissolve that throughout chapter 4. And so here he is. He said, we're weak, we're dishonored, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, and all of those things that he mentioned that I mentioned a while ago. But I want you to notice something right off before we get any further. They branded slaves. They had a mark put on them to identify who they were. And Paul declares in Galatians that he's a branded slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's voluntarily branded, but he's branded. He said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was beaten, sown, uh, he was uh, stoned, he was left for dead on many occasions. He had all the troubles that he mentioned in First and Second Corinthians, excuse me. But, <clears throat> but he suffered these things because of his love for the church, for brethren, and his love for God and his word. And you're going to suffer for something. And you just need to decide what you want to suffer for. Suffer for uh, the temporal things of this world cares of this world and chew your fingernails off about all of its man-made problems or you can rest in the sovereignty of God that's the choice you have and you can suffer as a Christian but Peter says if any man suffer let him suffer as a Christian because you're going to suffer alright we got that out of the way but here Paul talks about the suffrage of being a man of God and advocating the Word of God. I've heard it said by brethren over the years that a preacher or a teacher has to have a skin like an elephant, and so does his wife, because a congregation sometimes can be pretty bitter and pretty hard-hitting to a preacher. Uh, a friend of mine said one time that uh, he worked for this congregation and didn't pay him enough to even meet his bills. But he stayed there because he felt like he had something to offer them. That in that what they needed, they weren't getting. They hadn't been getting. And he stayed there even when he was losing money. He was going into his account. And his wife, bless her heart, she loved this hat that they had downtown. And he spent money that they didn't have to buy her that hat. And after service on Sunday morning, one of the good ladies in the congregation greeted him at the back door and said, Oh, I see we bought your wife a new hat. And he told her through clenched teeth, No, you didn't buy this hat. I bought this hat. That's, but what I'm trying to say is, uh, Bless people's heart, they don't know how they hurt you and how they look on things. And if you're going to stand before them, you better be ready to take the licks, okay? If you get puffed up and hurt feelings all the time, you don't need to be up here. You don't. You don't need to even consider yourself a leader of God's people. You know, father in the home is not really always liked, is he? Is he? And even sometimes by the wife, because she don't understand sometimes. And she gets crosswise with him and don't like him. But leadership is a kind of a lonely place <laughs> because there's not too many that understands your, your uh, suffrage. And Paul mentions it here. Uh, <clears throat> now there is, a, right there we just read a while ago, is a description of a man of God. I think I've made that clear. These things are the 
signs of success. If you would be successful serving the Lord, these are telltale signs. When they call you these, when they, when you suffer these things. <clears throat> in a denominational world, by the way that those men preach, they rake in millions and they live like kings. But the man of God, you'll never find a man of God uh, that preaches the truth. The uh, wealthy, you won't do it. He hangs by a thread all the time. And that's the way God designed it. You tell people the truth, they're not, they're not interested in paying for that. But you tell them a big flabbing lie, you build a congregation on joy, 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 and all the nonsense that you see out in the denomination world, and the world will go crazy over you. Boy, howdy, we got the best preacher in the world. I mean, he's built this, and he's established that, and he's got programs. Well, can you read about them in God's Word? Because the Word of God is our standard. No, they're not there. But boy, he's a good preacher. Well, he's seeking the popularity of the people. And so, <clears throat> so we truly are fools for Christ. Because according to human reasoning and human wisdom, a man will not set himself to suffrage uh, for hardly anything if he can get out of it. Uh, and so these that Paul mentioned here are the marks of honor they're the marks of success and then he says uh, they are scum that's the word Paul used about him and the other apostles and any man of God that advocates the word of God they're scum. Now that's a pretty hard word, isn't it? Uh, but uh, that's what he said. Up to this point, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuge of the world. That's the way we're looked upon. <clears throat> so they're scum and trash. So what are we to the world? Don't be surprised if the world gets mad because you were carried away, swept away, because the world views you as scum and refuge. But the question is, who made you to be that? Who made Paul to be scum and refuge? And that's a pretty important consideration, I think. The world didn't make Paul that. The world didn't make me that. The world did not make the man of God that. Uh, they view you that because uh, what's, that's what God made you to be to the world. What was his son when he came to this world? The scum of the earth. The scourge of the earth. Trash. They spit on him. And all that they done to express their uh, hatred toward him. Their disdain toward him. And yet, I don't imagine there was a family in Judea that wasn't touched by a miracle. Because the Bible, the Gospels say that he healed everyone that came to him. He never turned anyone away. And don't you know, the multitudes, as they gathered around the house to work, uh, the friends of this guy in bed couldn't even get the bed in there. And they had to cut a hole in the roof and go in. He was pretty popular, wasn't he? As long as they were getting the selfish desires of the flesh. Their loved ones healed, see? <clears throat> and so if the world says, these guys, they need to go to the arena. You remember we talked about the arena and how that Paul describes himself and the other apostles as... Uh, as on the tail end of the uh, of the uh, they were the, the, the under rowers they were the ones who didn't live very long because of the task that was put on them 
And the Lord's already told these apostles that you will die a martyr's death for my cause. Now, would it, it does it seem logical to you that a man would advocate a lie when he's beat for it and stoned and left for dead and hungry and thirsty and destitute and naked? Does that sound logical to you? You see, one of the proofs of the apostles' message is not only the power of the word they spoke, but also their lives themselves. They were like a slave that was branded by their master. And Paul said, I'll show you who I serve. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord didn't put the marks there. The world did. But still in all, he was a man of persistence in the word of God. And because of it, he was considered scourge of the earth. The world don't want to hear from God. I think you run into that quite a bit in your own family. They don't want to hear about God. <clears throat> and so the world says, these guys they need to go to the arena. They're a bunch of fools. Uh, they would do better if they would learn how to win friends and influence people. Now, I forget the guy's name, but he wrote a book and made millions on that book. How to win, that was Dale, who was that? Dale Carnegie. I don't remember. And it don't look like you guys do either. So we'll just drop that. But there was a book written, win friend, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <coughs> do you remember who it was, Sean? No, sir. Uh, their attitude would be that you wouldn't be suffering so much if you learned how to win friends and influence people. Now what we need to do is to get rid of these people. That was That's the world's attitude toward people like us, godly people. Particularly those who take a stand in the pulpit because they stand out more than maybe some of the other members do. That's not saying anything shameful about the other members. It's just saying that uh, the man's, anybody who hears of the Benton City Church they call it Merle's Church. I didn't die for it. I have nothing to do with the ownership of it. But that's how the world views it. And so the heat will come on me before it reaches you. The heat come on Paul before it reached the Corinthians. But they did need to know that it's coming. If you serve God, if you serve the world, it pats you on the back. Good old boy. Yeah. When the ungodly world says things like that, uh, thank you very much. Because that's a compliment. What we want to do is so love and so serve the world that they can't stand it. Because that's what you're doing when you preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. Uh, and then we will save who? Well, whosoever, whoever the Lord intends to be saved. There is some ingredients involved to uh, leads to a man's salvation. And Jesus spoke of them in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Those three chapters recorded his sermon to those people as he began his ministry. What he tell them? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What do you think he was describing? He was describing the man of God, a man who seeks and searches and looks and serves. And so, uh, the ones that the Lord intends to save are those that will listen to him. And the only ones that will listen to him is those who are humble. And again, that's why Peter said, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. And somebody quoted because I've quoted it so many times that you've got to know it. And I know the rest of you do it. It's just that you got startled probably. <laughs> but nevertheless, so in verse 14 through 21 now, 
uh, here is a picture of the local body, and he turns his attention toward the leaders. <clears throat> I think maybe Paul's last shot is what he's been trying to get around to saying all along, because they have a problem in division with leaders, with men. That's why some of them are calling themselves after Paul and after Paulus and after Cephas. They got a problem here in the leadership. And so he's going to deal with the local body and its leaders. Uh, he's done that in a way that, uh, 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 in that last section, because the standard for down to the standard got down to make the leaders humble is being made a spectacle and a refuge as far as the world's concerned. In verse 14 he says, I'm not writing this to shame you. That's how they would take it. And that's how it sounded, didn't it? Uh, but that's, he does, he's not, his intent is not to shame them, but to awake them and alarm them to the reality of this problem they have. They've got to cur curb it. You can't curb a problem that you don't know exists. You first have to be pre presented the problem before you can find the resolution to that problem. That's elementary. And so he says, I'm not writing this to shame you. Uh, that's an important consideration when we teach, isn't it? We don't teach to shame people. That's not our intent, regardless of who we are. Uh, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. He got more precious uh, in his letter here than brother, didn't he? He started out calling them brothers, didn't he? My brothers. Now he's calling them my children. That's a little more endearment, isn't it? As my dear children, verse 15, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, Guardians is child leaders. And that's what we're leading as children. The man of God, his task is to lead children. It, they may be 50-year-old children. They may be 70-year-old children. But the, the, the task of the leaders is maturity in Christ. And so he says... Uh, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, uh, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. He didn't say, therefore, I urge you to call me father. That isn't what he said at all. Recognize the relationship and, intimate, uh, and imitate the one through whom God has given you that relationship. Who sent Paul? Who chose Paul to go to Galatians? To the Gentiles. God did. Read Galatians, the first two chapters particularly, and you find that out. Read Acts uh, and Paul's trial before the Romans, and you'll find out that he... He understood because he was chosen by God to go to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Incidentally, isn't it strange that God would choose uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, a Benjamite named Saul of Tarsus, one who persecuted the church and was known in the headlines of Fox News as a persecutor? And God chose him to go to the world with the gospel. It would make some impact, wouldn't it? And so verse 17, for this reason, I am sending to you Timothy. Why? Why send Timothy? That you might learn how to imitate me because he's a good imitator. For this cause, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is... Uh, Fruitful? No, look at that text. It didn't say fruitful, did it? It didn't. But that's the way we think sometimes. I'm sending you my son whom I love, who is faithful 
F-A-I-T-H-F-U-L, not fruitful, faithful. Now, if you're faithful, are you going to be fruitful? Absolutely. But the, the main mission is to be faithful to God, regardless of the fruit. Uh, we had a guy come here and preach a sermon that kind of tickled some of us because the title of it was, Is There Any Fruit in Your Basket? <laughs> well, bless his heart, he, he had his heart in the right place, but the lesson was a little bit off because it makes legalists out of people. I don't worry about bearing fruit. I need to worry like you. I need to worry about serving God. And the bearing fruit is a result of His Spirit in me. Remember John 15? Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, and you can't. And that's, uh, But He said, if you abide in me, and my Father being the husbandman, because of that you shall bear much fruit. But where does the fruit come from that comes out on the vine? Where does the grapes come from on a vine, on a grapevine? Out of the, out of its source, out of the uh, vine. And we're just merely the branches. So <clears throat> he said, I'm sending my son whom, son whom I love, who is uh, faithful in the Lord uh, so Paul's got, got this single requirement he will remind you just by looking at him he's not going to uh, down there to teach that ain't why he left Timothy there that ain't what he said he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Now there's an important thing to remember here. You see what Paul told the brethren that Timothy will be there to remind you of what I teach everywhere in every church. The reason I brought that up is because there are people in the religious world, particularly Pentecostals, who want to uh, somehow justify this speaking in tongues or angel talk and all of that. And they go to 1 Corinthians 14. And, uh, uh, and there's another group of them that says, well, that letter has no bearing on us today, 2,000 years later, because it was written to those people at Corinth. That was a special problem they had. And Paul said, no, everything I teach, well, I teach everywhere in every church. And so what Paul taught at Corinth, he was teaching everywhere else the same thing. I hope you got a hold of that. Uh, it'll help you sometime. Uh, verse 18 says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how this, uh, these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. <clears throat> For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Uh, verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with uh, punishment or in love and with a gentle spirit? <laughs> Paul kind of takes the gloves off here and he's getting down where he really lived, where they really lived. Uh, let's look at this under six points. And you can mark them down. I'll try to point them out as we go. We're going to talk about leaders and what do they do. All right, here's six points in this text. Uh, they admonish, verse 14. 
as a father admonishes his children. And so leaders admonish, don't they? That's what Paul's telling them. Matter of fact, in verse 14, you got admonish and love together. All right? He said, I'm not trying to shame you, but to warn you. There's admonition, or there's, there he's admonishing as dear children. Uh, there's love. We should refuse to speak out of any motivation other than love. You ever heard the pulpit get vindictive against the group within it, in its group? Well, I have, and that's not right. The man of God that stands up here, even though the, the congregation is divided like Corinth was, some was calling themselves after Paul, and they're sitting over here. Another group over there is sitting separated, and they're quick to let you know that they, they're not a Paul, they're an Apollos. And all this division. And Paul's already annealed that pretty good, hadn't he? He's told them that it doesn't matter whether it's Paul or Paulus. Uh, I planted Paulus water. It's for your benefit. And uh, so uh, we should learn to speak from this verse out of any motivation other than love. So don't try to help people uh, you don't love because you can't do it. You cannot help people that you don't love. First time they come to you with a question or an argument, it may be valid, it may not, but they'll come to you and the first thing you do, you flare up if you don't love them. The very idea of calling me into question, what, what's the matter with you? That ain't right. You, gotta, you can't... Uh, you can't lead people that you don't love. can't do it. That's what's the matter in the home today. There's no love there. There's this obligation to feed children and to bed them, and that's about it. There's no real deep love, and the kids know that. They know they're not loved. A little child can pick up on a, a grown-up's attitude real quick, can't they? They're very smart. Let me give you William Barclay's definition of love. To will active, uh, unconquerable benevolence toward uh, invincible goodwill. No matter what a man is like, God seeks nothing but his highest good. That's God's love. He seeks to lift men out of the the uh, muck and the mire of life. He reaches for anyone. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That wasn't given to just some good people that had a few little problems. That was given to all men because God's not willing that any man should perish but that all should come to repentance, the scripture says. And so, uh, God seeks nothing but his highest good because of his love. It is not uh, it is not simply a wave of emotion. It is a deliberate conviction of the mind issuing in a deliberate policy of the life. It is a deliberate achievement and conquest and victory of the will. We will to love people. There may not be much uh, anything lovable about a person. Maybe they, you know there's people that don't have any character. Have you ever met one? I mean, the way they was raised at home. They never built it, their own character. They, they was not allowed to. And that's what the school system is doing to millions and millions of little children robbing them of their personality, of their person, of their character, and building in them a dependency on government and on higher educated people. So this definition of love says it takes all of a man to achieve Christian love. 
It takes not only his heart, it takes his mind, and it takes his will as well. You gotta to determine to love people. And again, there's a lot of people that's not lovable. But why do you love them? Because God loved them, because God made them, because God wants them. His whole uh, plan is redemption of ruined humanity. Can't you love ruined humanity? Because God's purpose is to redeem them? Well, you can't lead uh, people if you don't love them. They won't listen to you anyway. So to love is to will good toward. To desire good toward. And if you tell people you love them and grin, you can tell them anything else and they'll accept it after a while because the grin tells them that you love them. Now, they may not accept it right away, but if you love them and you grin while you're saying it, and so Paul is really getting at the case where he says, my dear children, anytime, uh, anytime that you're before uh, the people in a uh, period where they're going to have to come down on some bad negative stuff, spend some time talking about your love for them. Isn't that what Paul done? Remember the first chapter? He told them how much God loved them and consequently how much he loved them. They were the church of God. They were very precious. They were sanctified. He was talking to that man living with his father's wife. Uh, if we had that situation here, I'm telling you, we would all uh, be standoffish and uh, uh, we wouldn't speak to them people as though we had an obligation to punish them. No, we have an obligation out of love to teach them. Did they, did they teach uh, this man like Paul said? They lived with his father's wife? Yes, they did. Did he repent? Yes, he certainly did. And then Paul had to instruct him in his second letter, 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, he had to instruct him to be sure and show their love toward him, lest Satan get an advantage of him and drive him away. So, so uh, you're going to have to come down on some bad and negative stuff and spend some time talking about your love for them. Uh, didn't Jesus do that in a sermon in the seven? letters of revelation he first commended them what was good in them and then he went into the bad did you ever notice that read those seven letters to seven churches in the first three chapters of revelation and in every one of those letters he first commended them for their labor for their work for their manifestation of their faith or whatever it was he had something to commend them for. And then he went into the negative side of what they needed to correct. Isn't that what you do with a son? You take that son to the bedroom in his rebellion. And you tell him how much you love him. Son, your uh, dad used to tell me, this hurts me more than it does you. <laughs> I never quite could figure that out, but... That's what he was trying to do, to show me in many ways, I love you, son, but because I love you, I'm going to beat your hind because you're not listening. You're not listening. And you get like God with Israel in uh, uh, Hosea 2, verse uh, 14 and 15. He said, I will allure her into the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, and it will be her only door of hope. He had preached to them. He sent all the prophets to them, as Jeremiah, as uh, Stephen said in Acts 7. And what did they do with them? They killed them all. They rejected them all. And yet they claimed to worship God. You know why the Church of Christ around the country has these sour, these sick preachers? It's because they wanted it that way. They chose them. They selected them out of the herd to come and be their preacher and their panty because he's tickling their ears. That's the way people are. And so the Lord, he taught us 
how that we should deal with problematic things. First you go and commend them for what you can. Like the boy, you know, son, I'm very proud of you. you you're doing so good, but you this one point you got a problem with, and we just can't tolerate this anymore. This is no good for you or anybody else. All right, so in verse 15, here he talks about leaders uh, uh, beget. Now Jesus said, don't call any man your father. Uh, does that mean that you don't have a spiritual father? No, that's not uh, Jesus' background. Uh, go read it again. We're so legalistic that we deal with words without any uh, 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 context. Jesus said, look, your spiritual... Uh, he said, look, your spiritual life depends on God, not anybody else. That's why he said, don't call no man father in regard to the spiritual life. That does not have anything to say about your earthly father. Or it has nothing to say about Paul being the father of these brethren at Corinth because he's the one who went there and established the church. And he's called them his dear children. And there's another relationship that Jesus wasn't talking about when he said, call no man father. But does that mean that I can't look on the people that I have trained to look on Jesus and, uh, and not baptize but trained them? So the Father is not the one baptizing. Uh, the word beget means to bring into being, to produce. And so to beget is to bring a faith into being. That's called maturity, isn't it? And so the faith, the father is the one who raises a child, who disciplines that child and feeds that child. And so Paul is saying, uh, I want you to understand I beget you to the gospel. I fathered you, uh, not baptized them, but fathered them. That's, you remember in chapter 1 he said, uh, why do you call after Paul? Were you baptized in my name? He said, because of this misconception, he said, I'm grateful I never baptized any more of you than I did. Uh, he did acknowledge he baptized a couple of fellas, and beyond that he didn't remember. But his point was, why are you calling the, yourselves after Paul? Did Paul die for you? Did Paul purchase church? And I put up with that myself uh, in, a, in a form most of my life here in Benton City because from day one since I moved here, people have referred to the church in Benton City as Merle's Church. And I just hate that, but there ain't nothing I can do about it. That's the way the world views it because that's the way the denominational world practices, isn't it? Whose church is the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterian? Belongs to the guy that's up there. He's the one that gets his hand in the collection plate. He's the one that decides over the money as well as everything else. Uh, so that's why Paul stayed there 18 months, uh, was that he fathered them. Uh, he's the father of their faith. Uh, they partook of his nature. Isn't that what a father does with a son? And that's why he left Timothy there. Uh, so he bestows his nature upon the son. That's what a father does. And so he says, I fathered you in the gospel. So follow, I left Timothy behind that you might, uh, 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 that he might be an example unto you as he follows me. Leaders also teach, don't they? They're not only an example, they teach. 
That's the latter part of verse 17. He says, when he gets there, he will remind you, I'm your father because he's my son. I'm talking about Timothy. And you'll see me in him. But as you see me in him, it will agree with what I teach everywhere in every church. And the last of all in this listing is uh, uh, a father's discipline. He said, and sometimes we don't uh, want to do that. Sometimes we feel like that's God's business to discipline uh, brethren. But you discipline your children, and if you're are raising a family of brothers and sisters, the older brother becomes a father in that situation, doesn't he? Uh, does he... Uh, uh, so, uh, there's a story told that a father dies, he leaves two sons. One is six and the other is 12 years old. The older boy takes care of the younger brother until one day the younger brother uh, says, you are not my father. Don't tell me what to do, you're not my father. And the older son replies, I'm the only father that you've got, because your father died. And so that's, we have fathers in the faith, don't we? Paul's uh, discipline it's what he closes with. Uh, and I think we've got to leave him the right to be a disciplinarian so that when the time comes, we will know how to be a disciplinarian. Uh, whatever that word is. Dis dis I'm not going to try it again. Now, he could have come as soon as he heard of the 17 things wrong with the church, Paul could have traveled down there. But rather, he wrote a letter, you see. He could have run over there in, in the car, so to speak, and got out the whip and started whipping them. Uh, did he have that right? Well, he had that right by the authority that was given him, but not according to love. As an apostle to come and discipline the, the wicked personality. Uh, now we don't want to do that so he wrote this letter. He, uh, his uh, enemies are saying Paul's a coward. If he would have had any doubt uh, he would have faced them head on. And that's not the case. He's saying that's not how you do things. What you do is write all that's right about them. Isn't that what the, uh, he's done so far? I mean, he's written about all that's right with these people. Uh, the great privileges they have, the great standing they have with God and with one another, the power they have, the Word of God, the possessions they have, the mind of Christ, the standard they have, uh, the Word of God, and all these great things. And so when you are, you know, uh, that you are to correct the situation by positive preaching, don't be tempted to pick up the rod too quickly. That's advice to you and me. Be hesitant about picking up the rod of chastisement. When you get in the pulpit, you do not have a right to, to browbeat the brethren. You teach the truth in love. That's what Paul's message was in Ephesians. I think that's what uh, I'm learning here from Paul's discipline. He spent four chapters and now he's about to pick up the rod in chapter 5. I guarantee you from chapter 5 on, he's going to get on them pretty good. But he's first of all, like a father, he builds up the son. Uh, how precious he is, how much he's loved. And then the father deals with the problem. But before he gets on them, he tells them what right, what they are, what's right, and what they are. Just as uh, 
always, verse 15, I think, the approach uh, attests, uh, attests to Jesus. Uh, the prophets don't always do that. They were uh, different from Paul because they generally started right out with what what's wrong. They cry out, turn or burn. And that was their message. They had a little different approach, didn't they? They had a different law that was under law, not grace. Because the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came to Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. And so their message immediately, it didn't start out telling them how precious they were. It started out with the problem that they had in the prophets. Uh, in other words, repent or else. But Jesus is different. Paul is different because he's dealing with people who have a different relationship to God than the people in the Old Testament ever dreamed of having. He's writing to the church that has a different relationship to God than Israel did, that the prophets spoke to. And that relationship must be the basis for their reformation or they will not be reformed God's way. And so Paul says, yeah, I could have come, uh, and people think I'm not coming, but I am coming. He wrote the letter so that he didn't have to come the way uh, uh, he had to come to them because he, he's, uh, he just wrote them a letter to start with. I think if I went to the most ungodly congregation in the world, I think I'd uh, preach at least a year of faith, hope, and love. And then when I came with the rod, it worked. And that's what the Lord did, and that's what the Apostle Paul did. You first build them up in what you can build up in them. Uh, you brag about them, and then you bring in the problem. See, if I come with uh, a rod right away, they'll say, Oh, thou seer, go back to Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Uh, that's what they told Jesus, wasn't it? Uh, we're not going to pay you here. Get out here. And they quit writing the check. And then out of hunger, I'd have to leave. Uh, you've got to earn, even if you are an Apostle Paul, you earn the right to dis uh, display the rod. I think that's why I've learned in the past little bits and what it says is so important. I'm going to read it again. He says, I'm going to come and when I come, I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but I'll find out what power they have. You see, when a guy is a spectacle and doomed for the arena like Paul and the apostles, and the scum of the earth and fools and sufferers comes, all of a sudden, words are cheap. He said, look, if you want to agree, uh, you want to argue, let me take off my shirt. You see these marks on my back? They're the proof that I'm an apostle. And in Galatians, Paul presents every uh, argument he can for his apostleship. And then he says at the close of the book, if that don't convince you, let me take off my shirt and see those stripes. So what's the proof of a man's uh, love and dedication to God? How he conducts himself. Jesus said very simply on one occasion, by a man's fruit you will know him. What he produces, you'll know him. You'll know whether he's of God or man. Uh, the final proof of service as an apostle, uh, those are the marks that, it, uh, that uh, I'm an apostle, Paul says. So if you want to get in an argument, I'll just take off my shirt and show you my stripes. 
and show you the sufferings that I've had for Christ. And I'll match those against any sermon, any argument, any synagogue, syllogism, any logical treatment, uh, treatise that you want to uh, write. Uh, that's what Paul said, and that's powerful. He says, we weren't, we want to talk, we won't talk, uh, we will just show stripes. That's the proof there. Then a poem, then there's a poem, and I can't quit uh, remember each stanza, but each stanza ends with this statement. Hast thou no scars? I heard you praised in the land uh, like the uh, shining stars. You have no scars. Scars are proof of servant, servitude. And the poem goes on about this idea that you have no scars. Oh, you shine like stars out here, but you have no scars. The man who has scars has proof that he's the Lord's servant because he's been beat for what he preaches. He's been ridiculed, he's been called a fool. Uh, he's had to go hungry and destitute because of his faith, faithfulness to the Lord and to his word. Uh, and the poem goes ahead with a statement, uh, can he who has traveled far have no scars? That's the problem in a church. You see old fellas that's been in the church for 50 years and they've traveled far, but they have no scars. Ain't nobody following them. Ain't nobody going to listen to them. They're just an old fuddy-duddy that everybody tolerates. They don't know what to do with him. And the Lord can't do anything with him because he's never humbled himself before the mighty hand of God that he might be exalted in due time. I've got too much to finish here tonight, so I guess we'll uh, continue with this thought next next week about the scars, about the proof of who you suffer, who, who you serve. Does people who serve the world have scars? They certainly do. Go look into the eyes of a drug addict. Go look at the, the, the beaten death, the, the depression, and the disappointment in the eyes of a whore among earth. Talk to a murderer. I mean a man that comes off the battlefield, even killing him for his government. You don't kill a human being. I don't care what nationality he is, or how bad he's been, without a, a a drain on you and a stain that lasts a lifetime and you'll spend many nights of your uh, uh, in sleeplessness wondering and uh, trying every way in the world to justify what you've done even though you laid in a foxhole and aimed a rifle in the name of the government you don't escape the the awfulness, the awesomeness of killing another human being. I pack a gun and you know I go out and I think to myself many times, I sure hope I don't run into a situation where I'm even called on to even pull it. I don't want to. I wouldn't want to shoot anyone. Well, We'll start somewhere there next next week. What is today? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Is uh, don't we have elections? 
coming up the 20 in the 22s 2022 is that just uh, for the house and the senate and well we have a general election coming here this next month on second the 24 uh, the year 24 2024 isn't that for president yeah, and governor. I can't remember. I can't remember. Seems like it's twenty third. Inslee's up in twenty four. Yeah. It don't matter. Yeah. Well, I guess we're finished. Now, I have to remind you guys, I'm not the church, so if there's if you like closing with a prayer or whatever, that's up to you guys. Uh.